Amen. Good morning, church. It's great to see you guys. And if you are new today, I want to take an opportunity to give you a special welcome. We count it a privilege to have you with us and would love a chance to get to meet you and to hear your story and get to share a little bit more of our story with you. And we really do hope that while you're here, you feel like this place is home. We also want to take a minute and welcome our online community. We love that you guys tune in each and every week to be a part of what God is doing here at CBC. My name is Andrew and I am one of the pastors that is privileged to get to serve you and love you and lead you and to live life and do ministry with you. And today we are in week two of a brand new series that we kicked off last week that we are calling Reach. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But from the onset, one of the greatest values that not only defines and describes who we are, but drives all that we do is that we get into the Bible. So let me invite you up front to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. We were actually there last week. We were in Acts 1, 1 through 11. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 42 through 47. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, let me encourage you to raise your hand and allow one of my friends to gift you a Bible. This is a gift. It's yours to have and to keep. Bring it with you. Bring something to write on and to write with. Follow along. Take some notes, circle, highlights, write down observations and ways that the Lord is intentionally and individually speaking to your heart as we collectively share faithfully God willing, rightly dividing his word in a way that speaks to our community as well. Yesterday, I got to spend the better part of my day with the best friend I have ever had in my life. A man who has poured into me for the last nine years. He has been a mentor to me. He has been a leader for me. He has been closer than a brother he and his wife and their family have, have selflessly time and time again invested not only in me and my wife Stacy, but in our kids. We have lived a lot of life with them. He is an elder at the church that I pastored for five and a half years while I was in Minnesota. He is the first person that I ever met while I was in the state of Minnesota and was the last one to help me load the last box on my U-Haul as I left Minnesota to come here to our home in Nebraska. I was close not only to him, but I'm close to his family, his extended family, including his mom and dad and his two brothers and his sister. His dad died just last month on the 29th. And this has been A very difficult season, as you can imagine, for a son who is very close to his father. And so my friend Dave texted me Wednesday of last week. And he shared with me this awesome responsibility that he's taken on to be the mouthpiece for his family during his dad's celebration of life service this Wednesday, of which I will be attending. His dad, David D. Olmsted served in the United States Army for 20 years and then served as a police officer in Mendota Heights for 29 years. He was a faithful man who loved his country, who loved his community, but he was married to his wife for 58 years until the day that he passed away. He loved his wife and he loved his kids. Dave called me and he said, hey man, can I come to Minnesota, or excuse me, from Minnesota to Nebraska and spend some time with you and ask you to help me write my dad's eulogy? And I said, absolutely, but whatever I've got going on, I'm going to drop it and I will make all of my time available to you so that I can help you work through this process. And he came down 
He left Friday morning, got here right around one o'clock on Friday. We spent the whole afternoon Friday together. And then yesterday morning until he left, we went through the process of developing a eulogy. Now there's different approaches when a pastor or a ministry leader does a memorial service or a funeral or a celebration of life. But one of the things that I look for whenever I'm responsible and privileged to be a part of somebody's celebration of life are characteristics that describe and that define and that drove that individual in life. Because what I know to be true is that whatever describes you and defines you and drives you will likely impact every circle of your life. So I asked Dave, and again, I have the privilege of knowing his dad, of hunting with his dad. His dad was a, was a, was a jokester. I don't know how many of you know this to be true of me, but I'm going to share it with you. It's another confession, and that is that I have taken three shots at three different bucks, and I've missed every single time. I, cute, I killed a cute little doe. She laid down in front of me, and I pet her, and then I harvested the meat. But every time I get near a buck, something happens to me. So Dave actually nicknamed me Ray Charles. <laughs> and he bought me a box of ammo and gave me a half-price coupon and said, as, as many bullets as you go, I took five shots on one, on one buck and missed. It, 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 it was the scope. I got a new scope since then. The unfortunate part is since I got a new scope, I missed this year as well. So I don't know what to chalk it up to. I'm a lover, not a killer. I don't know. This guy was a, a, a prankster. And I got, to, I got to hear Dave describe even more for me in detail the characteristics that not only define and, and, and describe his dad, but that drove everything that he did. And on Wednesday, I am going to have the, the privilege of sitting in and being a part of a celebration of life that made a huge impact in many other lives. Last week, we kicked off a brand new series that we're calling Reach 2020. It's the, it's the word that we feel God has given us as a community that's going to move us this next year. It's going to drive us. It's going to inform us this next year. Every year we pray and we desperately seek God's face for his will in our church. And we talked about some of those other words that have, that have driven our ministry over the last three years. This year we believe that we are called to reach further in our faith and farther into our community. And it's to that end that we are planning to do a lot of really unique, really amazing things this next year. But I told you last week, if you were here, that before we can do anything, we first have to ask and answer the question, why we exist. And last week we discovered, again, that we exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. That that is what informs us and what motivates us, and what moves us. Well, today, much like getting to sit with my friend Dave as he described the things that described his dad and defined his dad and drives his or drove his dad, we're going to spend the next few weeks together looking at some of the characteristics at our church that we believe and we hope is obvious to the community at large around us these things that define us, that describe us, and that drive us. Let's begin in prayer, and let's jump into the first of what we call our core four. These are four core values that we believe drive us as a church so that we can understand all the more and experience all the more who God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, as we move now into a time of worshiping you through reading your word, I pray that it would become active and alive in us. I pray that the words would jump off the page 
and into our hearts. God, I, I, I pray that you would meet us right now. And Lord, I, I, I'm thinking about the song, one of the songs that, that we sang, that in your love, fear has no place. I think about Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 that says each and every day your mercies are new, that your mercies are new every single morning. I'm so grateful for each and every person here. I believe that they are, they are supposed to be here this morning. And I pray that they would know the, the newness of your mercies and that regardless of whatever fears or distractions they brought with them here this morning, that they would stand in the promise and the true nature of your love, that you would cast aside. Your word says that perfect love casts out all fear. I pray this morning that we'd be able to fix our eyes and our attentions to you and that you would have our affections. And I invite you now, Lord, to come and to move in us and through us. And I pray that as I preach, that I would preach with authenticity and with accuracy in a way that honors you and that edifies us. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone, Lord. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hopefully you've had a chance to find it by now. We're going to spend all of our time here this morning. But I want to recap for you, in case you missed it last week, where we were in Acts 1, 1 through 11, a little bit about this book. It is a piggyback off of an earlier book that Luke, a disciple of Jesus and a friend to his apostles, wrote. Luke, the author, is known as a physician, and he's known as a historian, and he's known as an author. He is a well-respected, well-liked individual who didn't experience an initial call on his life like, like Bartholomew or like Matthew or like Thaddeus or Peter or John or James to be an original apostle, but was the benefactor and the byproduct of the ministry of Jesus in and through his time here on earth, his teachings here on earth, his ascension, and then through the continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, which is actually where we get this name Acts, Acts of the Apostles. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, which is actually, uh, scholars believe that it's a broader representation, but Theophilus was likely a wealthy individual that was a missionary supporter. He gave fiscally to the ministry of the apostles and the disciples, and Luke was writing a detailed historical account of what he was hearing and what he was seeing, as well as historical data that he had been a part of through his circle. As he writes this, it's also incumbent upon me to help us understand that this letter was not intended for Theophilus alone, but was likely, as you read the entire letter, intended for Gentile Christians. Gentile is just another word to say non-Jewish, that this was meant to help them understand the fullness of who we are and whose we are in Christ. He writes this letter as a historical account of what takes place. And it is a continuation of the life and the ministry of Jesus through the apostles. At this point in the letter that we're about to pick up, Acts chapter 2, Jesus has come and he has been among his apostles one last time. And he has given them a commission that we looked at last week, Acts 1, 1 through 11. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem throughout Judea into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then as he ascends, we see that angels of the Lord appear to these men and say, men of Galilee, what are you doing? He's given you a command. 
Peter and his disciples go back to an upper room. They lock themselves in, all 120 of them collectively. The Holy Spirit, as was promised, descends upon them. They are each filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this madness that's surrounding the community as each one of them is speaking in tongues of, of, of different languages that is clear and concise to them. God is moving through them. They make some crazy allegations. Look, this dude must be drunk. Peter comes out and says, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. How could I already be drunk? And then he begins to give a sermon that changes and transforms 3,000 hearts in that day. So now we have over 3,100 believers, over 3,100 followers of Jesus. And what they begin to do is they begin to form a community. They begin to form what we know as the church, the ecclesia, the, the fellowship or the gathering of the body. And there are several distinctives or characteristics that will describe and define and drive what they do as a body of believers. Today we're going to learn about some of those distinctives on the way to helping us understand all the more the distinctives that we believe God has called us within our core four values that will describe and define and drive us as a church in our community and beyond. So follow along with me if you've got your Bible open. I hope you've got your hearts open. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 42. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. All the believers. Why, why would Luke give some specification here that it was all the believers? Because believe it or not, people can attend a church their entire lives. They can serve in a church. They can give financially to ministries. They can even put bumper stickers on their cars and wear amazing apparel like the one that I am modeling for you today and never have surrendered their life to Jesus. Keep in mind that the apostles and the disciples that are committed to Christ are a part of a Jewish community. As such, in Judaism, there are a lot of religious rules, regulations, and rituals that they're a part of. They didn't stop practicing their faith when they encountered Christ. There's no indication that these God-fearing Jews and Gentiles stopped going to the synagogues, or stopped going to the temple, or stopped in the feasts and the festivals and the celebrations. There were a lot of religious motions that they continued to go through. But here's the thing. Within a matter of years, Judaism as we know it changed forever because there were those within a certain sect known as followers of the way, which is the genesis of who we are as a body of believers, that though they lived in and amongst and with these other Jews, not only practiced the regulations of their faith, but they believed in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah as the one that the Lord had foretold in over 300 prophecies, thousands of years, that Jesus was there in body, incarnate, to fulfill, not to abolish the law. Because of this, it created contentious relationships within their context of their community, and eventually, these God-fearing, Jesus Christ-following individuals would be excommunicated from the temple and the synagogues and cast out of community. So Luke points out really quickly, right up front, 
that though are, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are involved in the context of this religion, this religious movement, that there were a minority, a small few that were devoted believers to Jesus. And I don't ever want us to get to the place where we assume, Christian, that because we put it on our calendar and we show up and sit in the seat and we give a few dollars here and there and we might volunteer to, to rake some leaves or change a diaper or, or say some nice things to the pastor or even buy some apparel, that that makes us Christians. Your attendance is not a prerequisite to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The only thing that you need to do, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Your commitment to the church is a byproduct of your relationship with Jesus. You see that? The more that you actively pursue Jesus, the more readily involved you become in his body of believers. So Luke addresses right up front. Hey, listen, there's a lot of people that are worshiping, but there are only a few that are committed Christians. All the believers. Now he gives a, a characteristic that will define and describe what makes them committed. He says, all the believers devoted themselves. That word themselves in the original language is meant to encapsulate the entire being, a person's mind, their will, and their emotions, their finances, their relationships, that they devoted everything that they have. Guys, can I be honest with you for a second as your pastor? As a person, we don't understand this concept. We understand comfortable community where we have our own things and do our own thing and then we are involved with the community as we're available or as it makes sense or as it's comfortable to us. They relied solely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and on one another in the context of their community. Which when we read that they devoted themselves, what we're reading in effect is that everything that they were made up of Mind, will, and emotions, their body, their finances, all of it. They submitted it to the Lord. He says they devoted everything that they had to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? How is that different from what Jesus taught? Well, early manuscripts would lead us to believe that the apostles' teaching, the apostle being an ambassador or a spokesperson, would have not only taught the Tanakh, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, but also the prophecies, both major and minors, as well as the writings of the Bible. They would have committed much of this to memory. So the apostles then would have likely been committed to teaching the Old Testament as well as Jesus' teachings and what they experienced firsthand. It opens up their world where teaching is concerned in their context and community. These devoted believers, these 3,120 plus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which means that they sat under, as disciples or understudies, these pastors as they were, and listened to their teachings, and, and, they, and they began to do something with it. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second characteristic that described or defined or drove who they were was that they committed themselves to fellowship. That word in the original language is koinonia. Fellowship literally means partnership. And I want to take a minute to highlight something that is maybe a little unique to Country Bible Church where other churches are concerned. We're not better. We just try to be as biblical as we possibly can. There are churches all across the world 
that hyper-focus on what is known as membership in the church. They'll go through membership classes, they'll go through some religious classes, and they'll sign a constitutional statement that says, as a member of this community, there are even churches that will vote on members. They'll vote a person into membership, they'll vote a person out of membership. They'll vote to transfer someone's membership from one location to another location or from one church to another church. My problem with membership is that I don't see it anywhere in the Bible except when the Bible is clear. Jesus says, look, if you're in Christ, you are a member of the body. You are a member of the body. What I do see throughout scripture is though we are not called to membership, we are called to koinonia. We are called to partnership. You see, here's, here's what I'll tell you conceptually. I believe that my, maybe my biggest point of contention is members have rights while partners have responsibilities. A membership mentality comes in and says, well, I have a right to sit there and I have a right to complain and I have a right to, to ask that they do this for me or do that for me. I have a right to vote on everything. I have a right to make decisions on behalf of the church. I have a right to know everything that's going on. I have a right. The, the problem is, according to scripture, no, you don't. What you do have is a responsibility if you are in Christ to be a part of the koinonia, the fellowship as a partner where you're a contributing member with responsibilities in honoring God and advancing his kingdom collectively with us. Does that make sense? Next week, we're going to have an annual summit where we're going to talk about what we've, what we've experienced the last year and where we're going this year. That meeting is for all the members in the church. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, congratulations. Jackpot, you're a member. Come on out, please. Write it into your calendar. I won't take much more than 45 minutes to an hour and a half, maybe three of your time. <laughs> they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. What is significant about sharing in meals? Friends, think back to, let me lean into the guys just for a minute. Fellas, lean in. Think back to the very first time you spent time with your wife. How many of you that was over a meal or involved a meal? Raise your hand. Was that you? For me, it involved tater tots and a really bad burger at Top Burger in Washougal, Washington. True story. There was a gnat in my tater tot. It was disgusting. We experience common unity around a meal. We experience fellowship around a meal. We experience friendship around a meal. We have conversations around a meal. There's a familial bond or a familial tie whenever you read in scripture to a meal. But there's also something unique in the Old Testament that we need to understand about a meal. Whenever God made a covenant commitment with anyone for any reason, it began with a covenant and it was sealed with a meal. It was sealed with a meal. They would mutually enter into an agreement, God and his people, and they would seal or they would agree upon that covenant between God and man with a meal. There is something intrinsically tied to the heart of God and us connecting with him and others through a meal. If you come to the Anderson household, you could experience uh, a comedy night over a meal or a funeral. It just depends on what night of the week. And I've got kids, teenagers with all kinds of emotions. <laughs> all kinds of emotions. I'm not going to tell you who, but just last week, one of my kids started crying, a teenager. And I said, what happened? And this kid would not tell, could not tell me what happened. I said, who did it? They did not tell me who did it. I said, did I do it? That was the most important. They said, no, you didn't do it. Nobody did anything. Nothing happened. I'm just crying. And I walked away. 
I said in my out loud voice, if I can't fix it, I don't know what to do with this. And Stacy just encouraged me to walk away. And I did. I walked away. Meals at our house are a part of something substantial, something significant. We, we do life and ministry together. And a lot of our great conversations come around a meal. These, the reason I'm, I'm hyper-focusing on that is because to share in a meal means that you're including somebody into your family. You're bringing them into an intimate part of your life. Including the Lord's Supper. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's description of the Lord's Supper. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting with his disciples in the upper room on Sabbath. And he, over, over the Passover, he took and he took unleavened bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, guys, this is my body given to you. And then he took a common cup and he said, this is my blood poured out to you. As often as you eat this and drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Unfortunately, religious circles have done us no favors, and we think we only practice communion or have to practice communion at the church on a Sunday, and we call it Eucharist or Holy Eucharist. And I have no problem uh, understanding and identifying that it's unique and it's special and that we should observe it. But the true, the true ordinance of communion, of Eucharist, is actually intended to be at every single meal, every time you, com- uh, you commune with somebody. He says, often as you drink this and eat this, do this in remembrance of me. What we're doing is we're we're, we're placing attribution back on God, that this blessing comes from you and that this community we're experiencing is because of you. So Luke points out here that this is what they're doing. These are the things that are defining them, that are describing them, that drive them, and to prayer. What kind of prayer? Well, if you know anything about Judaism or Jewish circles, there are, uh, there's a, a cantor who will recite from a book of prayer and there will be uh, this, 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 this call and repeat and they'll read together we also know that they prayed the Lord's Prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, John taught his disciples to pray. Teach me to pray. And what did Jesus say? My Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me today my daily bread and forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. For yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we know that they prayed these religious prayers that were part of their community. We know that they prayed the Lord's Prayer. And then we see in the Old Testament, as far back as Genesis, as far back as when Abraham sends his servant to find a bride for his son Isaac, and he goes and he says, God, in his heart, the Bible says, in his heart, he said, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to me my master's son's wife. And the Lord responds at a well with a woman named Rebecca. Cool story. So we see that they're praying in their hearts. They're praying as a community. They're praying from the religious perspective. There's all kinds of prayers that we can uh, assume that are going on here. Verse 43 now. Let's continue to think about this in terms of definition and description and driving them. Verse 43 says, a deep sense of awe came over them all. Yeah, I think this is a problem in most uh, 21st century Western churches. We miss this deep sense of awe. A deep sense of awe, the Bible uses that word as fear, but it's a holy fear. It's a reverent fear. We come in nonchalant and assume that we're going to hear a few songs. There's going to be a message. We're going to get to hang out with some friends. And then we're going to go on about our day. They came to the place where they, as they, as they, as they were coming into a community of worship together, they were in awe of what God was doing in them and through them and for them and by them. 
They were in awe of his miracles, of his signs, of his wonders, of how God was providing. They were in awe that Peter would give a message and 3,000 people would come to know Jesus. They continued to be in awe of the things that God done, which, has done, which we'll talk about here in a minute. I wonder, church, I wonder how dramatic the culture of our church would shift if we came here not with expectation but with awe. Not expecting to get something, but with a reverent fear of the almighty great God who has done everything. How would this culture shift if we came not out of expectation, but out of awe? When we lift our voices collectively in community, and what a beautiful time of musical worship we had today. Where we were unapologetic and and raising our hands as a sign of adoration, adoring God where we felt comfortable falling prostrate on the ground as a sign of total surrender to God, where we came in with open hearts and just thanking God in awe of who he is. This is what the early church was known for and what they were devoted to, what they gave all of themselves to be about. Verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. The miracles, signs, and wonders were actually... For those not a part of the community of Christ, a validation of the teaching ministry of Jesus. You see that? He made all these bold proclamations, and then through the miracles, signs, and wonders, it was a validation that Jesus was who he said he was, that God is who he says he is, and that the Holy Spirit moves how he says he moves. When it says that the apostles continued to perform many miracle signs and wonders, you need not look any further than Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sits down with his disciples and he prepares them. He says, in a minute, you're going to go two by two, and I'm going to prepare for you a way, and I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, and you will go and do these things in my name. You will heal the sick. You will raise the dead. You will, you, the blind will see. The, the deaf will hear. The, and, and, and in John, Jesus does something even more critical when he says, these things you've seen me do, yet greater things will you do. The Holy Spirit is promised upon these apostles and then they're commissioned to go and continue and carry on the ministry of Jesus. So what we see here is clear. What we can assume then, according to Matthew 10 and Matthew 28 and John and Acts and all this, that the apostles continue to do a crazy amount of ministry. In fact, after this story, you're going to read about Peter on his way to temple worship, not to worshiping in the temple. Let me say that. And as he comes to a gate called Beautiful, there's a guy who is lame. He can't walk and he won't even look at these guys and he's asking for money and Peter looks down, he kneels down and he locks eyes with him and he says, gold and silver, I don't have any of it to give you, but what I have I give you, get up and walk. And this man who's never experienced movement in his limbs or in his legs gets up and he dances around and what does he do immediately? He goes and he worships. He devotes the first thing, his affections and his attentions to God in an aspect and an attitude of worship. He's in awe, not expectation. He was expecting some money and God gave him the ability to walk. The disciples, the apostles continued to perform many miraculous signs and wonders. And, verse 44, and all the believers, we talked about that, the difference between religious people and followers of Jesus. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. What is that? What does that mean? That they met together in one place. We're going to learn here in a minute that there's house churches, but that they come together for collective, collaborative worship. I'll explain more about that in just a minute. We're also going to learn a little bit more in a minute when it says that they gave everything that they had. That this isn't referring to communism. There's actually something unbelievably unique about what's going on. 
This wasn't socialism. They weren't all putting into a pot everything that they had and allowing the government to divide up for them and give as the government saw fit. Something else unique is going on here. But they met together, all together in one place to worship, and they gave or shared everything they had. Verse 45 tells us a little bit more. They sold what property? Their property. That lets us know that this isn't communism. Because we'll find out here in just a little bit about Ananias and Sapphira, how they come and they want to donate some land and they want to give it and uh, attitude and motivation and some lies. They have their own property. They have their own possessions. They have their own families. So then when it says that they sold their property and possessions, what we need to know, what's critical that we focus on here is the reason why they did this. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in what? Jesus says, True religion, or excuse me, James says, true religion is this, that you care for who? The orphans and the widows. Jesus says about sheep and goats, about those who say that they love Jesus and about those who follow Jesus, that they will give to those who are thirsty and hungry and naked and sick and locked in prison. What these guys are doing, when we read Luke saying this, what we need to hyper-focus on is that by selling their homes, by selling their land, and by selling their possession in order to give to people who had need, it tells us that they cared more about people than they did about property. What would happen if we adhered to the biblical model of the body of believers and we got rid, it didn't say that they got rid of everything. It says they devoted themselves entirely. And as people had need, they made a radical and a generous gift, a contribution to the community where they sold what they had because they believed that people were more important than their property. I told you guys last week that my wife and I have a very aggressive goal to get out of debt in 2020. That we're on a spending fast because we used to spend way too fast. My son today, on our way to church, we began to talk about, I said, hey man, if you want to go into Omaha to get Chipotle, it's got to come out of your check and by the, or by, out of your bank account. And by the way, you're going to pay for the gas to get there and back. All of a sudden, he didn't like Chipotle as much. <laughs> and we just made a decision to, we're not, it sounds silly to say we're sacrificing, doesn't it? That's so stupid. We're sacrificing by not going to Chipotle. I mean, I'm feeling the pains of it a little bit, but... We're making some intentional efforts not to do these things. And here, as I look at this, I had a conversation with my son. I sold uh, something that was, that was important to me, that was valuable. It had value. And my son asked me, Dad, why would you sell that? And I said, because it sits in my closet and collects dust. And if I pay down my debt faster, I'll be able to be even more generous with the things that God has called me to give. How many things are just sitting around collecting dust in your closet that you could sell to give to those in need around you? And you wouldn't even notice it. And when you did think about it, you would think, man, thank you, God, that you provided a means and a way for me to give to the community. These guys selflessly, not out of communism, but out of conviction and a heart of community, they, they, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Verse 46 they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. When it says that they met in the temple each day for worship, there's a few things that we know. One, we know that they went to the temple three times a day to pray. To pray. One at nine, one at noon, and one in the early afternoon, evening. Unfortunately, again, 
guilty as charged, the Western culture church in the 21st century has helped us equate worship to the music that we play on Sunday mornings. That we play four songs and that we hear a little message and we feel good and then we go on our way. The problem with that is that is not at all what we see as worship in the Bible. Music is just one small attribute or aspect of worship. We see that they cried out. We see that they prayed. We see that they sang out loud. We see that they gave out shouts of joy and adoration to God. We see that they selflessly gave in the temple financially of their means. We see that they made intentional sacrifices. We see that they went from their home and to a place of worship on a continual basis. We see that worship wasn't just something that they did, but it was a part of their lifestyle. It was a part of their community, and they worshiped in a lot of ways. They worshiped through spoken word. They worshiped through the public reading of scrolls or the scriptures, and because it was a necessity, not everybody was, had the, the word of God readily available to them, so they relied on the priests and Levites to, to read the scrolls, and then the priest would then help them understand through interpretation of the scriptures what it meant. So they would read the word of God publicly and consider that an attitude and aspect of worship. They memorized scripture as a part of worship. They would be quiet in silence as an aspect of worship. They would meditate on his precepts, on his laws as an act of worship. Friends, please don't mistake music for worship. You can sing these amazing songs with beautiful theology, with an amazing worship team, and not have a clue what you're singing and not mean it in your heart. And it's not worship, it's a concert. The moment that you identify as Jesus Christ's and you begin to understand the nature of what you're doing when we lift our voices collectively as a choir in the context of community and you sing out the theologies of God, it becomes worship. And what does the Bible say about the kind of worshiper that God looks for anyway? That true worshipers will worship the spirit in authenticity, in truth. Worship is actually an attitude that's reflected by our actions. And what I love about this, and Hebrews also will say, don't give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. There is a high call. People who say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You're right, you don't. But if you want to honor God and be obedient to what he calls you to, you do. That when we come together, it's a, it's a, it's a part of our sacrifice. It's a part of our worship but there's a lot of really cool things that happen when we gather. And we're going to talk about that at the end. They gather together for community worship, for public worship. And it says that they met each day in the temple. And then they met in the home for the Lord's Supper. Guys, if you haven't heard about our life groups here at Country Bible Church, the life group ministry that we are working to develop is a byproduct of what we just read. That not only did they meet collectively in the temple for worship, but they met individually in homes and they, they did five things together. And these are the five mitochondria that inform our life groups. They spent time together in fellowship. They prayed together. They worshiped God together and read his words. They served the community together. And they multiplied the ministry. If you're not doing one of those five things, you're just a social club. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But if you want to be intentional about being involved in a life group that, that is advocating and advancing the kingdom, then you've got to put yourself in a position in a place where not just on Sunday, but throughout the week, you're meeting with your friends and family in a community that is praying together, that is worshiping God, that is reading his word, that is, that is experiencing life and ministry together, and that is serving him and, and, and advancing more of his ministry. So they not only worshiped together collectively, but they met in small groups and they shared their meals with what? With what? That's not, that's not rhetorical. Let's put it up there. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Do you know that your attitude has as much to do with worship as your attributes? How you give your money has everything to do with why you give your money. The Bible says don't give begrudgingly, but give with what? A glad and sincere heart. That when you come together in a place of worship, it doesn't say you have to be in a good mood every time or that you have to feel good every time, but joy is a choice, not an emotion. I met with a Stephen minister, a friend of mine, just this last week, and he said, emotions are, are, are real. They're just not true. And the problem is we base all too much decisions in our lives based on emotions, and our emotions can change like the tide. If you were at my house during the Rose Bowl, of which there was a, a lead change between Wisconsin and the team that God loves, the Oregon Ducks, <laughs> there was a wide range of emotions in my sunroom. I went from extreme joy to extreme anger in a matter of seconds. And then again, extreme joy. I'm sitting there screaming at this, 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 this senior quarterback saying, dude, you've been known throughout your entire college career for throwing touch. Oh, you just ran it in for a third touchdown and we just won the game. I was just lecturing him at nauseam on the television and now I'm cheering my guts out. Emotions are real. They're just not true. When you come to a place of worship, don't come because of your emotions. Come because of your affections. And allow your affections for Jesus to inform your attitudes and your emotions. Come on. Come on. Allow your affections for the Lord to inform your attitudes and your emotions. Some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life have nothing. They don't have two wooden nickels to rub together to make a dime. They don't have great health. They don't have big mansions. They don't have multiple cars to choose from on their way to church. They don't go out to eat three or four times a week. They don't get, they, according to the standards of this world, they, I mean, they're broke and yes, they have every, I mean, their, their, their health is ailing and things around them are falling apart. And yet you cannot rob them of their joy because they know whose they are and they allow who they are to be informed by their affections. All right. Verse 47. I love this. I love that Luke points this out. All the while, as they're worshiping and praising God with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. What does that mean? The goodwill of all the people. We talked initially about all the believers, but now he's talking about all the people. We moved from 3,000 to tens of thousands. What this says, if you know anything about synagogues or temples, they were the, 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 the centerpiece of the community. And what this shows me is that because of the way these followers of Jesus lived their lives, it had an intrinsic impact on the community at large, and they were glad that the church was there. They were glad that the church was there. The church was making a difference in their community. It mattered that they were there. 
As long as I am the pastor of your church, we will work at at, at, at tireless lengths to build a church that is seen as a community center where this community at large will be better because we're here and they'll be glad that we exist. Not everybody, but you can't fix Goofy. I used a filter. You can't fix Goofy, but as long as we're actively pursuing Jesus... And living this kind of community, when we gather together, this community will be glad we're here. You know who was glad we were here in August? 246 kids who got their haircuts. Over 300 kids who got a backpack to go back to school, fully loaded with all their supplies. Guys, we are not here to build a holy huddle for casual Christians. We exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And we're going to do that in a way that makes sense and matters in this community. And that people want us here. All right. Here's the home stretch. Y'all should never assume that when they start playing music that we're almost done. I've literally had them play for 15 minutes. That's why they stopped playing guitar and started going to keys because it's easier on your fingers when I get going. Isn't Andrea doing a great job? They're not, they're not. Our worship team does a great job. Man, I love our worship team. I love that we come together through worshiping with song. I just appreciate you guys so much selflessly giving it out, uh, giving it up each and every week to, to help us lead us in a, in a, in a, as conduit to usher into a place of community with Christ. But listen, here it says, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And here's what happened. As they were obedient to the mission of Christ, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were what? Those who were being saved. I'm going to make a really bold statement that I think is supported throughout Scripture. If you're in a Christian community that isn't seeing people saved, you're not a church. If you're in a Christian community that isn't seeing people being saved, you are not a church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, you will be You will be my ambassadors to the whole world. And you will go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all these things I've commanded you. In Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my ambassadors, my spokesperson, my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what are we responsible to share? The gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. What is the good news? God with us. Why is that important? Because it leads to what? The opportunity for salvation through his ultimate sacrifice. If everything we're doing isn't intended to glorify God, to encourage each other, to equip us for the ministry, and to see salvation, then we're not a church. That's why I care. That's why I care desperately about those numbers. Because they represent whether or not we're doing the things God has called us to do. If we are faithful to the ministry and the mission, he will add. I have never saved anybody. Andrew Anderson has never saved anybody from the thralls of hell. I am incapable. But by the grace of God, as we have been faithful 
within the context of the community of the church to preaching his gospel, the Holy Spirit has spoken and come alive in people. And the Bible says, if you lift his name up, he will draw all people unto himself. And because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have given their life to Jesus here as a byproduct of the ministry of this church. And they have been saved. Whenever we come together and create an atmosphere and an opportunity for people to encounter Jesus, and we beg the Holy Spirit to do what only he's capable of doing, friends, people will be saved. That's why we exist. So, all right, here it is. The first of our core four. We have four values that describe and define and drive us. The first one is that at CBC, we gather. We gather. We gather for corporate worship. We gather individually in life groups. We gather one-on-one for discipleship. We gather in small circles for ministry. We gather in large circles for missions. We gather. And when we gather, we gather for three reasons that we see highlighted throughout this passage of Scripture, as well as in Acts 4, which we're going to get to next week. We gather for three reasons. We gather first to exalt the name of Jesus. Not to exalt any person or any pastor or any process or any program. We gather to exalt the name of Jesus. Of who? Of who? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We gather to exalt, which means to lift up, to celebrate, to praise, to adore the name of Jesus. That's it. That's the first reason we gather. The second reason that we gather is to equip the saints. It's to equip Christians. It's to present the word of God in a way that matters and makes sense so that we can rightly divide the word of God and hopefully prepare you adequately to go out to live the life that God is calling you to live. When you gather in life groups, that's why there has to be an element of Bible study so that you're equipped to go do the ministry that God's called you to. That's why we have our discovery classes so that you can become equipped. That's why we have youth ministry and children's ministry so that we can equip the next generation, the now generation to do the ministry of God. When we gather together, we gather not only to exalt the name of Jesus but to equip Christians. That's why we want you to have have God's word in your hand at all times so that you can become equipped. The third reason that we gather together is to encourage one another. Encourage one another through life and ministry together. Paul says in Romans 1.12, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. It's a, it's a consenting mutual relationship where we are sharing what we're experiencing throughout the week. And there are times where you're going to need more encouragement than I am. And there are times where I'm going to need more encouragement than you are. But we come together to mutually encourage one another. So what is one of the first core values of our church? What drives us? What defines us? We exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And one of the characteristics of that is that we gather to exalt the name of Jesus. We gather to equip Christians to the ministry that he's called us to. And we gather to encourage one another. Amen? Amen. All right, guys, we are going to move now into a time of worship, of adoration, of lifting loud our voices in declaration. We are going to sing a song that has theology in it, that has doctrine in it, that has beliefs and truths about the nature of God. And man, I'm preaching real good now. I had to stop and swallow about the nature of God and, and about who we're called to be and who we are because of him, because of what he's already done. So I cannot encourage you enough. I can't implore you enough to stand on your feet and to ready your hearts and open, to stand on your feet and to ready your hearts and to open your minds and to open your mouths and to get ready to worship God in spirit and in truth as we lift his name together. Man, I love you guys.